Lawyers wear many hats. Some go into private practice, some into government service, and others represent the poor. Among those who choose courtroom work, some lawyers become prosecutors, some become criminal defense attorneys, and some become civil litigators. And of course, let's not forget lawyers who become law school professors and those who become judges. Of all the lawyers I've known throughout my long career, few have excelled in as many areas as Karen Green. Coming out of Harvard Law School in the early 1980s, Karen was a rising star in one of Boston's largest and most prestigious law firms, eventually becoming chair of its renowned litigation department and then co-chair of the litigation department of the powerful successor firm that resulted from a law firm merger. Despite her success at private practice and influenced by her parents' devotion to public service, Karen felt the pull to do more. So, over the course of her distinguished career, she also has worked as the first assistant United States Attorney for the District of Massachusetts, became a state court trial judge, served on dozens of nonprofit boards and committees, taught law students at her alma mater, and even worked briefly as chief of staff for the Massachusetts governor. Now retired, Karen Green continues to give back, dedicating significant time to the American Bar Association Center for Human Rights and serving as a member of the Rule of Law Leadership Council of the World Justice Project. I can think of no lawyer who better represents the ideal of what a lawyer can and should be, a contributor to the private bar and business community, and a dedicated public servant. Speaking with Karen for this podcast was an absolute delight for me, and I hope you find her story as inspiring as I do. How has, how has that type of work, which you've done a ton of, um, how has that enriched you as both a professional and as a person? I, I think it keeps you going. I think when you surround yourself with people of goodwill, it's infectious and it makes you want to just be around them some more. So I cycled off, for example, the uh, Center for Human Rights Board, and then I applied to be on the advisory committee because I did not want to miss the opportunity to continue to work with good people. You know, there's so much bad going on. I mean, when I think of the thousands, tens of thousands of people who've lost their lives um, just this week in Turkey and Syria. You know, there is that going on in the world. And then there are people like the people I was, you know, at ALI with and people that I work with in the Center for Human Rights and the World Justice Project. And they just renew my faith in other people. I'm Don Federico, and this is Higher Callings. Karen Green, good morning. Thank you for joining me on Higher Callings this morning. Good morning. Um, you and I have known each other a long time, although we haven't really interacted with each other much in the last 20 or 30 years. But uh, so it's been good to reconnect with you and uh, to get a better sense of the things you've been doing over the course of your long career. Um, 
if you don't mind, I want to just kind of provide listeners right now just a very brief overview of the types of work you've done. Is that okay? Sure. All right. So first of all, um, you went to college at Harvard Radcliffe. You went to law school at Harvard Law School. You spent many years in private practice at a major law firm that then merged with another major law firm. You spent quite a few years also in government service, which we'll talk about. You were a judge in the Massachusetts Superior Court for several years. And while you were doing all of those different jobs, uh, you've also served on a lot of nonprofit boards. You've done other public interest work. Um, you've just had an extraordinarily active career, both in private practice and outside of private practice. Um, you're also married to uh, another friend of mine who is a judge, and uh, the two of you have raised two children. So. And now I understand maybe even some grandchildren, but um, it, it's just, it, as I said to you uh, privately, I get exhausted looking at your resume because you're one of the most accomplished people I know. And you've been accomplished not just in one thing, but in a number of different directions, including work that really does contribute to the common good and serve the public. Um, so now that I've said all that, have I left anything out? <laughs> you've been too kind. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've also done some teaching, uh, as as many lawyers do, uh, but you've you've taught in CLE programs while a lawyer and while a judge. Uh, so, um, and and your work has not just been a straight line progression. You know, you've been going in and out of private practice uh, for. For years, um, it, it felt to me as I read your bio that public service has had kind of a gravitational pull for you. Um, so we're going to talk about all of that. But um, why don't we just start by talking about uh, what you spent most of your careers, uh, most of your years uh, during your career on, which is your private practice experience. You and I met each other many years ago uh, when we were both young lawyers at Hale and Dorr, which then later merged with Wilmer Cutler Pickering. Um, so it's now known as, the shorthand is Wilmer Hale. And you worked at both of those. Uh, you worked at Hale and Dorr and at Wilmer Hale after the merger. Uh, so let me just ask you, what type of work did you do? What was your, what was your private practice? Uh, you know, it depended on it depends on what period you're inquiring about. I started off uh, for the first two years. Uh, I was an associate, and I did pretty much commercial litigation, products liability work, and some tort litigation. Um, after I uh, went to the U.S. Attorney's Office and came back. Um, I the first time I was in the civil division, and so I came back and was doing commercial litigation, securities litigation, and intellectual property litigation. Which was a big part of the firm's practice at the time you yes, went back. Yes, it was when that was the late '80s when the IP practice was really taking off. Yeah, um, and I did uh, a few cases involving sneaker technology, uh, representing, among other things, a Reebok 
subsidiary that sued Nike. Um, and then, you know, when I left uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office after being Deputy U.S. Attorney, um, many of the clients who came to me uh, had problems with the federal government, um, including clients who were under investigation for crimes, alleged crimes, and I developed a white-collar criminal defense practice and false claims act practice. So it really depends on what chapter of my career you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, why don't I put a little more context into this, which just to say that uh, after law school, you, you clerked for Judge Garrity on the federal district court. And for people who don't know who Judge Garrity was, I always remember him as the judge who integrated the Boston schools back, I don't know when that was, the 60s, the 70s, I think. 1974 is yeah. his order. Yeah. Uh, it was a very controversial order. There was a lot of strife in Boston at that time. I didn't live in Boston at the time, so I only was seeing it from afar. But he was um, a very accomplished, very well-known, uh, and because of that case, probably somewhat controversial judge, but very well-respected by, I think, most lawyers. And then, um, so then you went to Hale and Dorr for a couple of years, and then you went to the U.S. Attorney's Office for about three years after that in the Civil Division. Then you went back to Hale and Dorr for about six years, and uh, by then you were, uh, you, you, during that stint, you became a senior partner in the firm, which was no small accomplishment. It's a, it's a very high bar. Um, and then you went to uh, become chief of staff of Governor William Weld, who I think had been a partner at Hale and Dorr. Is that right? Yeah, what I had worked for um, Bill Weld when he was U.S. Attorney. Oh, I see. Okay. The first time that right. I went to the U.S. Attorney's office. Right. Um, and he, uh, it, it so happened that I was on the hiring committee uh, when he uh, became a partner at Hill and Door. Uh, I was there. I remember it like it was yesterday because I, you know, it was. Clearly, other people had already decided that he should be a partner at the firm. But he met with members of the hiring committee, including me. Went through the and, process, yeah. And I remember thinking um, that he should be interviewing me rather than the other way around. But we had a nice conversation. <laughs> well, obviously, uh, you hit it off. Um, and, we worked together, actually, at Hill and Door while he was there. Okay. Um, but then, then you went from the governor's office to the U.S. attorney's office. You became first assistant U.S. attorney, which, as I understand it, is like the person who runs the U.S. attorney's office. Is that a fair description? I mean, you were at the top of the chain right under uh, the U.S. attorney at the time. Yes, and I worked closely with Don. Um, that was Stern. Don Stern at the time, who yes. you and I also uh, both know. Um, okay. So uh, you were there for three years, but then you went back to Hillendor for another eight years, and then the merger took place, and you were you were at Wilmer Cutler Pickering Hillendor for. I was chair of the litigation department at Hillendor, yes. and a member of the executive committee when. Uh, 
the merger discussions right. and the merger occurred. And you became co-chair of the litigation department of the merger firm. Um, and the in litigation department went from, you know, the firm went, uh, grew exponentially, right? So right. Uh, from around 120 litigators to 430 litigators as a result of the merger. So, at, you know, my, my point of just running through all that, oh, and by the way, after you were back in private practice for all those years at the merged firm, Wilmer Hale, uh, then you became a judge on the state court bench in the Massachusetts Superior Court, and you served there for about six years. So it, it's just an extraordinary blend, in my mind, of private practice and public and government service and all at leadership levels, uh, other than maybe in your first few years as you were a baby lawyer, uh, we all go through the training process. But after that, you you held leadership positions in all of these places. And, you know, it, it to me, it shows a real pull to public service, to kind of doing the work that supports the common good. But But tell me a little bit about why you did that? Why why were you so drawn to government work? And then um, then you did go back into private practice. And I will say you kept going back to the same firm, which has very high standards. So they clearly wanted you back. They I, they probably were not happy when you left a couple of times. But um, how what what led you to have that sort of mixed hybrid kind of career? It's probably a couple of things. Um, one is my, both of my parents were public servants. So my father was a policeman for 36 years. And my mother was a first a parochial school. And then after she got her degree, uh, her BA at the age of 45, I think, um, she then had a long career as a public school teacher. Um, but both of them taught us, I think, that there was real honor in public service. And that my mother used to say, and she was quoting somebody else, um, the person to whom much is given, much is expected. And, um, you know, our view was that we have been given, given a lot. Um, also, you know, as you may recall, Hale and Dorr, uh had a tradition not only of litigation excellence, um, but also of public service yes. in terms of extraordinary amount of pro bono work. Yes. Um, and I found that, uh, and they, the firm encouraged it. Um, so, uh, when I uh, helped with the transition, um, that the firm said that was fine, you know, and I was helping to coordinate the transition for the Executive Office of Health and Human Services after um, Bill Weld became, was elected governor, but before he took office. Um, it, there's a poem that I read 
in the early 2000, uh, which you may be familiar with. It's uh, by Marjorie Pierce, and it's uh, entitled, I think, To Be of Use. And it talks about how wonderful it is to work with other people who dive right in and just try to make the world a better place. Um, and it captures, I think, why it is I was always drawn uh, to doing things that served more than just me. Yeah. Well, you've certainly done that, Karen, and um, I'm sure you've, and we'll, we'll talk about some of this as we go through this, but I'm sure you've made a significant contribution, and you're still doing that, uh, which is also pretty remarkable, I think. Um, you know, it's, and, and I, I'll say just, you, you know, from somebody who knew Hale and Dorr back in the 80s when I was there, and and also continued to watch it from a distance after that. Um, you're right. I mean, it, it was one of the leaders in developing pro bono work for private law firms long before you and I were ever there. And it continued to do that, and I'm sure Wilmer Hale still does. Um, but it also, you know, had high expectations in terms of the productivity of the lawyers in private practice. So. To be able to balance the firm's expectations of what you will do as a private lawyer uh, contributing to the business of the firm with the firm's great tradition of public service, um, that's no small feat. And, and you seem to have managed it uh, better than I can ever imagine most people uh, achieving it. But why don't we keep going on? I don't want to just sing here and sit here and sing your praises. I want, to, I want some facts and details. Um, well, I, well, I should add one other thing sure. that I don't even know that you know about me, which is um, in 2009, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. No, I didn't know that. And, um, you know, I think there's nothing like that kind of experience. Uh, to make you think about how do I wish to spend my time. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, probably contributed, well, I know it contributed to my decision uh, first to go to the Advanced Leadership Initiative and then the project that I did in connection with the initiative and then the decision to apply for a judgeship. Okay. No, I didn't know that. And, and um, well, that's clearly you had a commitment to public service before your diagnosis, but um, I can understand that that would have also a profound impact on some people. Not everybody would respond to it the way you did. Um, so give yourself some credit for that. What is the Advanced Leadership Initiative? I don't I think I'm familiar with it. So it's a program at Harvard University, which is a one-year fellowship in which people who have uh, had leadership positions come together. There's a core curriculum on advanced leadership, um, which is pretty much offered at the business school. But the thing that distinguishes the, we call it the ALI program from other fellowship programs, is that you are not limited to any particular 
part of the university. So you can take courses anywhere in the university, the law school, the school of public health, uh, the medical school, wherever you'd like to take courses. And fellows take, um, they recommend you not take more than two courses while you're doing the core curriculum. Um, and then you're expected also to mentor and to do a pro at that time to do a project directed at solving a social problem. Um, and so that's what the fellows do. Did you, did you do that while you were working or did you take a leave? No, what, in 2014, I applied to the program and I thought at the time that I would retire from Hale and Door. Uh, but the managing partner uh, suggested that there was no need to retire, that I could take a sabbatical instead. Great. And so I did. Um, but in the course of the project I did and uh, the thinking I did, I decided that I would really like to be a judge. I mean, I think I always, in the back of my mind, wanted uh, to be a judge after clerking for Judge Garrity. I had so much respect and admiration for him. Um, and uh, the skill, in my view, and courage he displayed as a judge. Um, but anyway, I uh, made that decision. And when I went back to Wilmer Hill, one of the first things I did was advise the managing partner that I had while I was away applied for a judgeship. And so she knew that. Um, and then, you know, as you know, it takes a while for the process sure. to unfold. Sure. Um, and eventually I was nominated and confirmed. Let's go back a little bit to your sort of the early times in your career. So you started out uh, at Hale and Door. And for people that don't know or don't remember, I mean, Hale and Door was one of the great litigation firms, uh, especially in the city of Boston, but really nationally as well. It was just had phenomenal senior partners who had accomplished many great things. And you get the best training. Uh, I think you and I had great training when we were young great lawyers training. there. Um, but very early on uh, in 1984, I think you'd been there about three years, um, you went to the U.S. Attorney's Office. So that was a rather early move for, for a lawyer to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office that quickly. And I know you went to the civil division, so you weren't doing criminal prosecutions. But tell me a little bit about that. What was your thought process? Why did you want to do that? I wanted to do it because I wanted to get trial experience, even though I will tell you that I had only been at Hale and Door for, I think, three weeks when um, Steve Oleski recruited me to work with him on a malpractice trial. Oh, really? Um, okay. And so I had my first trial in my first year, um, although obviously Steve did much of the examining sure. and cross-examining. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, the fact is that there were two other associates in my class um, who had gone to the U.S. Attorney's Office before me. And who, uh, one of them, I will never forget, called me up and said, you know, it's a lot easier to draft discovery requests if you've actually experienced a trial and know how it'll be used ultimately. Yeah. 
And uh, that made sense. Also at the time, Bill Weld was just creating this unbelievably um, talented uh, U.S. Attorney's Office where he was bringing people from many, you know, Bob Mueller was first assistant sure. at the time that I was, uh, that I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And, um, uh, you know, Rick Stern, now Judge Stearns, um, Martha Sossman was one of my colleagues. Uh, Judge Patty Saris was the chief of the civil division wow. at the time. Yeah. It just was a great opportunity, in my view, to get some on my feet experience and to learn. Did you try many cases while you were there? I only tried a couple of cases. <laughs> um, uh, but they were both interesting trials. Yeah, so. good. Good. And so then when you returned to Hale and Door, you were a more experienced trial lawyer by then. Um, and in that second stretch with the firm uh, from 1987 to 1993, you worked up the ranks from litigation associate to junior partner and ultimately to senior partner. Um, what kind of work were you doing during that segment of your time with Hale and Door? So at that time, I, I was doing um, intellectual property litigation and commercial litigation yeah. and, and securities litigation, including class actions. I, okay. I worked a lot. Well, you representing well, companies in class actions. I was public pretty much, companies, pretty much on the defense side. And uh, yes, representing companies. Public OK, companies. OK. So you did that for a number of years, and then in 1993 was when you went, uh, I guess that must have been when Bill Weld became governor, and you went to be his, were you his first chief of staff? Uh, no, he became governor in 1990, I believe Oh, it was. okay, all right. And uh, Mark Robinson was his first chief of staff. And Mark had been and with Hale and Dora? Uh, where, where Mark, did, no, he was at a different firm, wasn't he? He was at a different firm. He yeah. was at, I know Bingham. he was at Bingham. Yeah. And he was at, at um, he was at, actually at a firm that my husband worked at during the summer. And Mark was his, uh, his, uh, you know, one of his mentors during his summer program. Boston's okay. such a small legal It is, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah. Um, but in any event, uh, that's the kind of work that I was doing. And uh, what happened was the governor just called me up one day and invited me to lunch. And I had no, I will say that after I worked on the transition, um, the I was The transition asked, of? The governor. The governor transitioning to become governor and, governor. and start working. Um, I was asked if I was interested in going to state government then. And I said no, um, because I felt like I was anxious to get back to Hillendor at that point. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he just called me up and uh, invited me to lunch and told me that, you know, he was thinking about making some changes and did I have any interest? And I thought about it. I got back to him and said that I did and then didn't hear anything until a reporter from 
the Boston Globe called asking me to confirm that I was going to be the new chief of staff. And you didn't know that anybody knew at that point, or you hadn't I, even, you didn't even know at that point. I didn't even know at that <laughs> point. Um, so I rushed uh, to advise John Hamilton, then the managing partner of the call I had just received and to let him know that yeah. I had had that conversation. And once again, the firm was just, uh, could not have been more supportive of, sure. you know, the idea of doing that. So I did. Good. And then, then uh, how did it come about that you went to work at the U.S. Attorney's Office? Um, sounds like that started around this, you know, not long after you became Chief of Staff. I don't remember when uh, Bill Weld was governor. What year was, was he still governor after 1993? Yes. So what... What happened was um, in the fall of 1993, Don Stern called me up. Yeah, another Hale & Dorr person, yeah. And, and Don uh, and I worked together at Hale & Dorr and actually were two doors down from each other. And so uh, we would talk a lot. Um, and um, he called and said that, you know, he had been appointed, I knew he had been appointed U.S. attorney, and he was thinking about uh, his office and would I become his first assistant. And at the time, you know, my reaction was, I can't, I can't leave the job I'm in. I haven't been in this job long enough. Yeah. Everybody's going to think there's a problem. And so I said, no, I, I consulted with two people whose judgment I very much respect, both of whom uh, encouraged me to stay where I was. Okay. And um, and then Dawn came out to my house uh, oh. that Friday evening. Wow. Uh, we sat on my back porch and we talked. And, you know, Dawn had been legal counsel to Governor Dukakis. Right. Uh, including when Governor Dukakis, I think, ran for president. And we had a very candid conversation about thinking about what you're doing right now and whether you're, it's something that you're finding very fulfilling and whether, you know, what are the pitfalls of being in a political job when your boss is running for public office and all of that kind of stuff. And, and I, I, you know, after the conversation, um, I realized that I enjoyed being a lawyer and yeah. I was not in, and I, even as chief of staff, I was viewing issues the way a lawyer would view them as opposed to a politician. Right. Right. Um, so I actually changed my mind uh, because I had, it, it, despite everybody's advice, because I had been very happy at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And yeah. the notion of being able to, you know, he, Dom was going to let me sort of do a lot of the hiring and stuff, um, or make, you know, obviously make recommendations to the U.S. Attorney who would sure. ultimately decide. But he went, and, this wasn't just a US, an assistant U.S. Attorney position he was offering to you. He was asking no, his you first to be assistant. his first assistant. Right. right. Which meant, you know, overseeing the civil division and criminal division on a day-to-day -day basis and helping to 
uh, further his initiatives. I also um, worked very hard on the healthcare fraud initiative during this period that Don started. And, um, you know, I, I just, I knew Don was a good person yeah. and I just loved working for him. Now, were you trying cases too, or were you just, were you overseeing the work? I, I, I was mostly, you know, making decisions, um, yeah. <clears throat> with the U S attorney and the head of the civil and criminal division. Okay. Um, but uh, I did work on a couple of cases while I was there but, too, because I thought that was important to understand what other people were going through. But those were legal decisions. I mean, you were oh. being first assistant U.S. attorney is, I guess, uh, a far cry from being chief of staff of a governor, even though there may be some similarities because you're in a senior management position in both jobs, right? Right, and you want to you want to make sure everybody's working well together and yeah. the, the office is cooking with gas, I guess. But um, yes, and I, what I did in that job was, you know, obviously I was a US, acting U.S. attorney um, when the U.S. attorney was recused. So I, got, I was basically serving as U.S. attorney on the Charlestown Code of Silence um, case and on, you know, when... Um, there was a shooting in Brookline uh, at the Planned Parenthood Clinic. Uh, what was it like? You know, it, this just occurred to me to ask you, what was it like stepping into that role when you were not a career prosecutor, you were not a career U.S. attorney lawyer, either on the civil or criminal side, um, but you were now responsible for overseeing uh, a number of people, I imagine, who had been there for years and who were uh, prosecutors. Criminal work wasn't something you had a lot of experience with at that time. What was that like, stepping into that situation where you were responsible for and had people reporting to you who had been in those jobs for years, um, and now you were kind of a stranger coming in from private practice and, and the governor's office to do that work? The word that comes to mind is humbling. Um, I realized that I needed to listen to people who had more experience um, carefully, and I tried to do that. Uh, uh, and I think uh, made better decisions because I did that. Right. Um, but, you know, the, Don would say that, Don knew my background. Uh, I sure. think what he would say is that he also wanted a fresh perspective on some things. Yeah. Um, and he hadn't but, actually been a U.S. attorney in the U.S. attorney's office either. He'd been in the attorney general's office for the state. Yes, but, but I think he had um, earlier in his career been a public defender. Okay, so he'd been a public defender. He'd been an assistant state attorney general. Right. Um, that's what I remember. I, I mean, I knew Don when he joined Hale and Door um, and and beyond. But um, I remember when I was a law clerk to Judge Toro in the federal court. Don was with the AG's office um, and made regular appearances there uh, in regard to a consent decree that the judge was overseeing. Um, yeah. 
anyway, I don't I don't mean to get off on that tangent, but but there is a a sense in which both of you were kind of new to the office. Um, but in some ways you were newer than he was because uh, he did have years of uh, other government uh, law enforcement responsibilities. Right. Okay. All right. Well, so you you worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office as first assistant for a few years. You went back to Hale and Dorr. Hale and Dorr then became Wilmer Cutler Pickering Hale and Dorr. You were head of the litigation department at Hale and Dorr, co-chair of the litigation department afterwards. Also, no small task. I mean, one of the areas that the firm was most known for was litigation. It had a great litigation department. It had a large litigation department. And it had a lot of people who, like many trial lawyers, it probably had some people with big egos. And uh, it might have been a little hard to, uh, to run. I, I can't imagine what that experience was like for you except you had a great team of people to work with and to oversee. So um, hopefully that was a, a good experience. Um, there, it was a great experience, a lot of self-starters. And of course, Bill Lee was um, managing partner at the time. Right. And um, he is, in my view, an exceptional leader um, yeah. and has done amazing things. Um, and I learned a lot just from watching him and, and watching people like Steve Oleski and Joan Lukey and, uh, you know, the Jerry Fasher. I mean, you you know yeah. all these people, too. I and, sure do. Um, uh, so, I, you know, I, uh, I developed a practice, which was uh, uh, government investigations and litigation practice, where I was representing companies uh, that were under mostly federal criminal investigation. And it was a different kind of practice, right? Because it put a real uh, premium on making sure you understood the facts and uh, uh, avoiding indictment, making sure your clients, uh, that you knew what the facts were even better than the government did Right. by the time the government wished to talk to you. Yeah. Um, the goal, obviously, was to avoid indictment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way corporations sometimes did that, <laughs> uh, if they were, I think, enlightened, was to uh, do an internal investigation. So another thing I did besides represent companies in investigations and litigation was I probably did more than 50 internal investigations in which I was brought in uh, to investigate what happened and then make a report to the board sure. of the company on um, uh, what happened and what corrective actions uh, were recommended. And um, I did a lot of that for healthcare, you know, pharmaceutical and healthcare companies generally. Yeah, healthcare fraud and abuse was a big area of criminal investigation back then. Right. I imagine it still is. I I used to be with another firm that did a lot of that work, but not in the recent years. Um, well, I've now been on both sides of it, right? Yeah. Because at the, at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I was really on the enforcement side. Sure. And then um, in private practice on the defense side. So then uh, in 2016, you left private practice. You retired from Hale, Wilmer Hale. Yep. Um, and 
you went on the bench. So you were in the uh, Superior Court. I remember for part of that time, you were in the business litigation session. Yes. Right? Not right. Maybe not the entire time. You probably started out somewhere else. Uh, yes. I started, uh, well, all judges, uh, when they start out, with some exceptions, do increasing, increasingly what they're doing is six months on the civil side, six months on the criminal side per year. Um, and so I was doing, I was doing more civil uh, initially, but then I was doing six months civil uh, in Middlesex or New Bedford or Boston initially, and then six months criminal in Fall River. Okay. And uh, after two years, I think it was two years, uh, or maybe three years, I became uh, I was asked to do the business litigation session, and I did that for the rest of my uh, time as a judge. Yeah. So, uh, but even when you're doing the the BLS, um, it's a six month commitment, and yes. then you go back to a different session. Which were you doing? Was your other session a criminal session when you were? Yeah, I would. I was doing. I did um, a criminal trial session in Fall River, and then. Uh, what they uh, call first session, which is all of the pretrial motions. But I, I, I did a number of murder and um, uh, child molestation, effectively oh trials. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I want to talk about the BLS just for a minute. I, I remember when it was first started which i think was somewhere around 1990 and it was the brainchild i think of alan van gestel uh another lawyer uh who when he was in private practice was a very prominent and well-known and well-respected uh trial lawyer who then became a judge and um i think his vision for the bls was that you'd have initially it was one judge and it ran that judge was there all the time year round. Right. They, they weren't splitting sessions. And the goal was to be like a model of the federal court where cases were assigned to a single judge, right. rather than having judges move in and out because in the superior court, judges move around. Um, right. I don't know if it's monthly or every six months, I think. Um, but they go from one court to another and you never know who's going to be hearing your case when you have a motion to be heard right. or Who's going to have it when it's tried? Um, that was the case. I mean, the, I think yeah. at some point before I got there, um, a decision was made, and I think it was a smart. No, it didn't change really. Oh. What ended up happening was, uh, you would two judges would be assigned to the right. session. Um, so one judge would, and you would uh, alternate every six months with yes. the same judge. Um, and so you still had the benefit of somebody who knew the cases. Um, it, you couldn't have like 10 different judges touch True. a single case. Right. Um, but I think they must have determined at some point that, um, the judge needed some relief after six months. Yeah. I mean, I've always heard, and I can understand it, that that is a very hard session to, to handle just because, 
the cases tend to be larger and more complex, or at least more complex. There's a lot of motion practice. Um, there's just a ton of work, and, and there's nev never been enough support staff for judges in the state court system. So, um, yeah, I always heard that was really hard, and I understand why. It, 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 in a way, it's, I think it did detract a little bit from the experience for lawyers to not have the same judge every time on a right. case, but not significantly enough that I think it made a big difference. And obviously the judges did need to have a break after six months in that session. So yeah. The, the volume of paper that uh, <laughs> runs through the VLS is uh, amazing. But, but the other thing is that um, the court system hasn't had the same resources that private firms have had. Right. So they are behind in technology. Yes. And uh, and the sheer processing of these cases. Um, and so, you know, that hopefully that will all change now that the bond bill has finally passed. Okay. Um, but, you know, it is uh, not an exaggeration to say that I had cases in the BLS where a motion would come in and then I would get four cartons of paper. I'm not surprised. Yeah. And and you don't have what what was the situation in terms of having law clerks helping you? You didn't have a permanent you law clerk assigned you to you. Yeah. We did not have we had um uh staff attorneys, but they rotated. Right. And so you didn't have somebody who worked only with you and who got to know your style. So you were going through all the paper files yourself for every case, which is just mammoth. And I, um, yeah, I remember, you know, I, I, a lot of my state court cases were in the BLS. And I just remember seeing judges come in with a stack of paper that they were carrying into the courtroom themselves that was three or four feet high. And well, I mean, you wonder, it, how, how on earth can the judge be doing this? And when you moved to a different session, yeah. uh, you sometimes carried those files with you because you still had to decide the case. Right. I would be sitting in a criminal session and at night uh, deciding civil motions. So I, I, did, I had a couple cases. They, I think they were both actually in the BLS where I was appointed by one of the judges to be a special discovery master. Mm -hmm. I found in that role, I had, it gave me a whole new perspective on lawyer conduct, on what works, what's effective, what's ineffective. I mean, when you're the lawyer or one of the lawyers, you have one thought and perspective about what will be the most effective way to present your argument, present a case. When you're a judge, it's all of a sudden, or at least I, was, I wasn't a judge, I was just a special discovery master, but I was watching the, I would watch the attorneys and I would think, oh my God, they never should have done that. They shouldn't have said that. But it, it was like my eyes were opened in a way that they weren't when I was on the other side of the bench. Did that happen to you? From time to time. Yeah. Uh, but I will say that um, at the same time, I was really impressed by some of the quality of the lawyering in BLS. Um, I had a complicated 
patent licensing trial where I thought both sides of the case presented their clients' cases well. Um, you know, it was a, like a 13-day bench trial. And um, it was com complicated, um, but it was um, a pleasure to decide a case where both sides were so well represented. Yeah. What, Karen, what were some of the qualities that you saw in the lawyers practicing before you that you thought worked best or that you thought worked least well? I, I think um, lawyers who try to resolve issues on which the case doesn't turn uh, without um, making them uh, issues. I, I, I think people who are good at resolving uh, discovery issues, for example, yeah, yeah. Um, do their clients a service. Um, I uh, was surprised, what I would not do is uh, fight to the limit about something that ultimately is not going to affect the outcome of the case. Yeah. And I found that the people who did that tended to be less experienced litigators. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Because, whether it's because they felt like they had to go back to a partner and explain why they didn't win this issue or what, but sometimes um, less experienced lawyers would not seem to be listening right. to the question or even to the decision that had already been rendered and want to re-argue it uh, when they're just, you know, were bigger issues to address. In the I, I think it does take experience. For most people, that's what, what it takes to get a perspective of what's really important and what's not. And right. yeah, I, I know just thinking about my own career, but I think this is probably true for most people you you start out kind of seeing the trees but after a while you get the big picture you see more of the forest and you get a sense of this is what really we need to focus on and forget about all these little side issues because uh they're just not that important and they're going to be a distraction but but one thing i saw too and i don't know if you saw this one of the things that i found uh most annoying uh for those couple of cases that i worked on um were ad hominem attacks, you know, lawyers that just, instead of arguing the issues, were just taking shots at the other attorney, uh, their opposing counsel, which not only wasn't effective, but it really made me almost hostile to the person that was uh, doing that. Um, I had to catch myself and say, well, I have to remain impartial, but boy, that attorney is so annoying, I just want them to lose. Right. You know? Negotiating terms, I think they talk about separating the people from the problem and focusing on the problem. Um, yeah. I have found that to be uh, really good advice in litigation um, and in a number of other things, too. I mean, the question is, what's the issue? How do we focus on the issue? And if the other side is 
you know, driving you crazy. Well, you don't have to tell him or her or them that. Just solve the problem. <laughs> you know, it's. I remember a judge. Actually, I don't remember which judge this was. Um, could have been one of a couple. But I was in a case with actually some other lawyers you you know who I won't mention. Uh, they were from a different firm from mine. Um, we were on the same side of the case. It was a class action, um, and uh, there was just a lot of animosity uh, across the between plaintiffs and defendants. We were that those lawyers and I were both on the defense side of this class action. But I remember a lawyer, just a, a judge, who was hearing all our motions and hearing all these really aggressive arguments and personal arguments sometimes, just saying, you all have to take a breath and you have to learn to rise above this. Um, he, he even looked at me at one point and said, I think I might have been the oldest, well, I wasn't, but I was one of the oldest uh, lead lawyers in the case. And um, he said, look at Mr. Frederico. He's been practicing long enough that he's been beaten down. <laughs> he's, not, he's not making all these terrible arguments. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I guess that's a compliment. I don't know. Um, but, but there is that. I mean, when you're young, you, you tend to not have that, that um, perspective and that context yeah. that you need to just go in and do the best job you can for your client. And your client may not understand it. They might want you to be obnoxious, but that doesn't yeah. help their case most times. Yeah. Well, let, let's move on. Um, one last thing I want to cover with you is um, the work you've done since then. And I know some of it probably started earlier while you were either in private practice or on the bench, but you're still doing a lot. I mean, you could be resting. You could be just enjoying your life and, and uh, uh, traveling. I know you do some. I, <laughs> I know you do a lot of travel, but, but that's not all you're doing. Uh, tell, tell us about some of the uh, projects you're involved in today. Well, I, um, I continue to want to advance uh, the rule of law. And so I've become involved. Well, first, I should say that when I became a judge, I had to give up all my directorships and yeah. activities for good reason. Sure. Right? Um, but there were, as a judge, I could continue to do activities that were directed at advancing uh, the law or teaching the law and stuff. So I've continued to, um, I continued as a judge to be an instructor at the trial advocacy workshop at Harvard Law School. And I continued to be involved in the ABA only as, you know, in the judicial section rather than the white collar criminal section. Right. And I, um, I got appointed to something called the ABA Center for Human Rights uh, Board, Executive Board in, I guess it was four years ago. And I did that for three years. You have a three-year term. And I loved the people I was working with. I loved the, the, um, the sheer hard work and courage uh, that they apply to doing the work of the Center for Human Rights. It's basically 
um, a center that mobilizes lawyers to uh, defend uh, threatened advocates, protect vulnerable communities, and hold governments accountable under the law. That's the mission statement. But the way it does it is through various initiatives, um, including, you know, a trial watch program. It, it, it does a lot of its work internationally, um, and it brings together lawyers uh, sometimes working on a pro bono basis, and it also has some very experienced staff who uh, perform work. And they, you know, they monitor trials in other countries uh, uh, where uh, lawyers are being threatened because they are representing unpopular causes from the perspective of the government. Um, are, those, are those both criminal and civil cases that they monitor? Yes, yes. Um, and they, uh, they also, uh, you know, they have something called the Eleanor Roosevelt uh, Human Rights uh, Award, which they, you know, we um, give to people who are advancing human rights across the globe. So um, actually, Anthony Fauci was the recipient, and Billie Jean yeah. King, and wow. um, Earth Watch, and uh, Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth, uh, uh, organization uh, received it most recently, and it um, it does all all kinds of good things that are directed at um, making sure that lawyers uh, can uh, lawyers and the press uh, are able to perform their functions. Um, the other thing that I've more, so I did that for three years on the board, and I think you wrote a piece on uh, your experience as a member of the House of Delegates. Oh, yes, yes. You know, the other thing that the Center for Human Rights does is it reviews proposals um, and resol proposed resolutions, and so we weighed in on the anti-Semitism um, resolution that went before the House. And, and uh, But we weighed in to suggest that the definition that was being used in that resolution be removed. Right. And uh, it was uh, for some very good substantive reasons. Sure. Um, so that's an example. The other thing I've been doing is I've um, more recently become uh, a member of the Rule of Law Leadership Council for something called the World Justice Project, yeah. which is an independent, multidisciplinary uh, NGO, really, uh, whose mission is to advance the rule of law across the globe. And um, it does it in three different ways. One leg is through um, a lot of research, um, independent research. The other thing it does that um, is best known for is it publishes annually something called the Rule of Law Index, which is um, which basically measures uh, the rule of law, the status of the rule of law in 140 different countries. I, I took then, a look at that on the. It's on the website of the organization, yes. and um, I think if you're blue or green, you're doing pretty well. Dark blue or dark green, and there wasn't a whole lot of dark blue and dark green on that map, as I recall. Well, the the as 
the data shows that in the past five years, particularly with the pandemic, the rule of law has declined. In fact, uh, 4.4 billion people live in countries where it has declined in the last five years. Um, and, um, you know, the, the United States currently ranks 26th in the rule of law index. I saw that. Um, so what do you was, do with that organization? Well, I, I think I interrupted you. Maybe there was something else the organization does that you wanted to tell me about. Well, the other thing it does is it has, uh, it convenes, it has something called the World Justice Forum uh, that it convenes every two years, and then it convenes regional programs um, to engage the public in these issues. And so, um, for example, there was an Asian Pacific uh, conference uh, forum in Jakarta in December. And people are able to participate. Uh, basically, all of the programs are streamed. So you have people participating from all across the globe. It's really quite remarkable. Wow. Wow. And, um, you know, the meeting that I went to was a brainstorming session last weekend in which we were talking about um, developing curriculum for civics um, in the United States as a means of helping to advance the rule of law. So important. That is so important. And we, the United States falls so short in the teaching of civics to high school students or younger students. The, the, the WJP also has a prize, uh, an Anthony Lewis Prize for exceptional journalism, because, you know, the, the World Justice Project, unlike other organizations, actually has attempted to define what is meant by the rule of law. You know, people bandied that yeah. phrase. And I will say, even as a lawyer, before I became a judge, and even for some of the time that I was a judge, um, it wasn't exactly clear to me what people meant when they referred, you know, Mark and I had gone on rule of law um, missions, you know, with this, uh, the, the rule of law initiative uh, to Russia and China. And, uh, so the term rule of law is thrown around a lot, but the WJP has actually attempted to define what is meant by it. And it looks at eight different factors and then sub factors under those. Wow. But, but some of them are, you know, uh, the absence of corruption. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just, you know, constraints on government power. You know, does the, is there regulatory enforcement? Can, um, can ordinary citizens access the civil justice system? So it looks at eight separate factors. And it doesn't look at it only in democracies, um, you know. But this whole this whole question of um, this movement toward more authoritarianism right. is um, is concerning, and it's happening across the globe. And the World Justice Project is trying to engage people to think about, um, you know, the costs of that on people's human development and socio-economic development in these countries. And what do you do with the organization? What's your role? So I currently, I've only been involved in the organization since last fall. So okay. I've um, currently I am engaged in an effort to 
educate people about the work. I hope to get more involved in the programs um, that are getting off the ground now on um, uh, the ind- keeping uh, the judiciary independent um, and uh, the importance of an independent judiciary. And also in civic education. I mean, one of the things I most loved as doing as a judge was going into a middle school and just talking to seventh and eighth graders about what, you know, what they know and don't know about how government works. There is, I imagine, no limit to the need and the opportunity for people to volunteer and find their own ways of contributing to the common good, whether it's teaching, whether it's being on a nonprofit board, whether it's um, having an active role in an organization that's involved in examining the rule of law or any of a number of other issues. Um, how How has that type of work, which you've done a ton of, um, how has that enriched you as both a professional and as a person? I, I think it keeps you going. I think when you surround yourself with people of goodwill, it's infectious and it makes you want to just be around them some more. So I cycled off, for example, the uh, Center for Human Rights Board And then I applied to be on the advisory committee because I did not want to miss the opportunity to continue to work with good people. You know, there's so much bad going on. I mean, when I think of the thousands, tens of thousands of people who've lost their lives um, just this week in Turkey and Syria, you know, there is that going on in the world. And then there are people like the people... I was, you know, at ALI with and people that I work with in the Center for Human Rights and the World Justice Project, and they just renew my faith in other people. Yeah. You know, the more I talk to people like you, um, you know, my last interview was with uh, a law professor, a clinical law professor at Cornell named Sandra Babcock, who runs the Cornell center for the death penalty worldwide um and you know i hope people will listen to the interview i did of her she talks about the work she's done in malawi in africa where a lack of resources has resulted in many people being imprisoned for crimes they're accused of but that they're awaiting trial for years and and they're just not the resources to get them out And she has brought students there over the years, and they've made an enormous difference in that country. So that's just one example of an international human rights program. You you look at what the American Bar Association is doing and uh, all of the different subcommittees or sub-organizations that connect to that work somehow. Um, I, I get overwhelmed by how much good is actually happening and how many people are actually doing great, great things in whether in large ways or in small ways. But, you know, you, you look at the nightly news and it's all about the bad. Uh, you, you miss a lot of the good. Um, so let, let me maybe close with this. What advice would you give uh, younger lawyers 
who are interested in becoming involved in programs or organizations that serve the common good. How, how, do they, how can they balance that with their legal careers and where can they go to find the opportunities that are the best fit for them? Well, I think the first thing I would say to them is figure out what your passion is and what you care most deeply about and then do some research. And to quote the Nike commercial, just do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny I, because when, when I was, I'm laughing in part because when I was um, asked uh, if I wanted to be on the House of Delegates at the ABA, uh, the person who is uh, the lead delegate for the Massachusetts delegation is somebody you and I both know. And uh, she sent me a, I, I was kind of mulling it over having talked with the executive director of the Boston Bar Association about what it involved. And she just sent me a text and she just said, just do it. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Well, I think, I think you, you it's just enriching. It makes, yeah. it, I, I'll never forget Deval Patrick when he was governor. Um, right after he was elected governor, he, he, he had, there was an event at Mintz in which he gave a speech about what he hoped to accomplish, et cetera. And it, were, it was an event full of lawyers. And what he did was he asked the attendees to be citizen lawyers in the best tradition and use the great gifts of education and other resources to make the world a better place. Um, and uh, I recently, he is now at the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, a professor of practice. And um, he spoke to my sort of the, the many classes of ALI, uh, which is now a coalition. And he was still encouraging people to go out there and repair the world. And I think uh, there are lots of people who um, would welcome the assistance of as many people <laughs> as uh, can find the time. I, look, I, I do not in any way minimize the time burdens that people experience as lawyers. Um, right. I know them firsthand. I knew them firsthand even as a judge. Um, and, you know, a, a managing partner once said to me, I think I was 38 years old at the time, maybe 40. He said, you know, Karen, you don't have to do everything all at once. A right. career is a long time. And it may be that you can only do three things now, um, but when your kids are grown, you'll have more time and you can do some other things. Yeah. And, you know, at the time, I, I remember thinking, I can do this now. I don't, you know, <laughs> well, the older I get, the more I realize that it was pretty good advice yeah. um, uh, because pacing oneself is also very important yeah uh, because right. you want to enjoy what you're doing too you want to be able to savor and learn from uh, the experiences without everything being a blur yeah um, so 
Well, I think that's great advice and probably a great note to end on. Karen, this was uh, really delightful talking with you about these always issues. A, always a pleasure to talk to you, Don. I, my hat's off to you that you are continuing to do all the things that you're doing. Thank you. I, I'm uh, Well, and I do them for the same reasons you do, I think. So uh, I, I get a lot of pleasure out of it. And I, the relationships you develop are relationships that um, just have tremendous value. So, so thank you. It's good to see you. And um, I look forward to catching up with you after this drops. Sounds terrific. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been an episode of Higher Callings. Your host is Donald Federico. Music is provided by Fancy Mountain, and our logo was designed by Matt Pedro. The associate producer is Brian Federico. Higher Callings is a production of Federico Media, LLC.